Amen. Can we make some noise for Jesus Christ? There are some people that are quiet. Let, let me try that one more time. Can we make some noise for Jesus? Amen. Somebody's hype. Well, listen, what, a, what, a, what an honor it is to be here found in the name of uh, Jesus Christ, worshiping together, corporately worshiping. I always say this, but it's true, man. You could have stayed home today. Somebody said, listen, listen, it's raining. It's about to rain out. Y'all could have stayed home and, and done so many other things. But coming together with the body of Jesus Christ to worship Jesus Christ is extremely important. Uh, and I am thankful for this opportunity. Uh, well, listen, it is my desire to knock off a large chunk of Habakkuk today. So if we could just jump right into it, it would be helpful for me. If you can get there for me, Habakkuk chapter 2. Grab your, uh, your devices or your, your Bibles. Whatever contains the word of God for you, meet me in Habakkuk. We've been going through this book, uh, this uh, sermon series on the book of Habakkuk. And uh, for those who are first-time visitors or maybe you just started coming to the church, uh, when I say we go through it line by line and verse by verse, it is very important for us not to skip over uh, chunks of scripture. We want to say and preach and talk about everything that the Word of God talks about. And so we want to be faithful to the Word of God, and we do that by working through books of the Bible. Uh, and it's been my experience in church that most churches that are even faithful to the Scriptures, most churches tend to stay away from the prophetic books. And this is a minor prophet, and he's not minor because he's less of a prophet than the rest of them. He's not minor because he's less of a prophet than Isaiah. He's minor because the book size. Uh, but Nevertheless, many pastors and churches tend to stay away for really two reasons. Number one, uh, the prophets can be very confusing. Like, if you don't understand the historical context, you don't understand the overall theme of the Bible, it's really, really easy to misuse the prophets. And you'll be looking for stuff to be fulfilled that's already been fulfilled. And you'll be looking for stuff uh, to, to be fulfilled in the future. And you look in the scripture, and it's like it's already fulfilled in Christ. And so we, we want to be faithful to all that the word of God has to say. But let me just warn you today. I'm just going to put my cards on the table today. Uh, I'll wait a second. There we go. Was it me? Uh, there, there are times in the word of God where um, when you're going through books of the Bible, that there are parts that you come to that you're really not excited about preaching. This is one of those passages. It's like when you were a kid, you know, and your mother used to make you uh, eat a well-balanced diet. You couldn't just grow up eating pizza and nuggets, but you actually had to eat the, the vegetables and the broccoli and the cauliflower. Uh, now that you're older, you appreciate that, but if you think back to when you were a kid, you typically didn't like that, but it was good for you. That's where we are today. You getting broccoli, you, you getting cauliflower today because that's what the word of God presents. And we have made a commitment not to skip over any pro part of it. The other reason that people typically stay away from preaching in the prophets and in the prophetic books is because uh, they're somewhat prophecy is somewhat unique in how we see it today and how we saw it in the Old Testament. You know, we're, we're a charismatic church, and I'm talking not just in terms of expression, which I don't mind that, but we're a charismatic church in, in terms of we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. So we believe the, that prophecy still happens today, but we have to be honest that it happens differently than how we saw it in the Old Testament. 
And so when we look at prophecy in the Old Testament, you, I mean, I don't know a prophet that God is just like talking back and forth like we see with Habakkuk. But that's what you get. And the reason you get that is because in 610 B.C., which is when this book was written, stay with me. In 610 B.C., when this book was written, he didn't have a completed Bible. He didn't know anything about Matthew. He knew nothing about Paul. He knew nothing about Peter. He knew about Christ because Jesus says all of the prophets wrote about me. So he knew something about Christ, but he was very partial in his view. And so the Lord would speak to him as the Bible was being completed. But now in 2018, you got 66 books that the Lord speaks through. And so this is how we get the word of God. And back in the day, this is how they got it through prophets. And so many times people stay away from it because we just see prophecy very differently. Here's my goal. My goal over the next two to three weeks is to finish the book. Uh, It just picks up. Chapter one was a little bit slower. Uh, We're going to finish chapter two today, and then we're going to work through chapter three, and it's going to take us about two to three weeks uh, to complete the entire book. And after that, we're we're not going to start another book of the Bible until the fall, probably mid-fall, and we're going to jump into a New Testament book. But between there and the summertime and going into the fall, we will be doing some standalone series, which means our standalone sermons, which means they're not connected to a sermon series. Uh, And uh, I do want to do a sermon series, a four week sermon series called Social Media, Identifying the Real You versus the Social Media You. How how many know, like, let's just be honest, y'all do stuff for the gram that life y'all really ain't like that. Like vacation ain't that dope. You don't always look that nice. Your relationship is not that intact. Like, let's be honest. Like, we will argue and then take a selfie and smile and then go back to arguing. But all y'all see is a selfie and us smiling. So I think it's important that the Bible helps us to identify and, and really put some identity on who you are. Because the reality is you're not the social media you. Because we always put the best us up. And we filter the heck out of the picture when you know you don't look. You ever meet somebody, you be like, oh, I saw you on social media. You didn't look like this. Y'all, got, y'all being real spiritual today. Well, in that four-week series, we're going to identify the real you. And here's the thing. You know, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. God made you to be you, not to be the social media you. And so it's important that. Uh, we work through what our identity really looks like. And we'll be dealing with a lot of topics within that four-week series. And so I, I have more to come on it. I'll let you guys know when we're going to start that. All right, Habakkuk is where we are today. Um, let me lay some more cards on the table. We're going to read a large chunk of Scripture, so I pray that you would bear with me as I work through it. And it's not going to be as expositional today as I typically am, meaning line by line and verse by verse. Uh, I think it's important. We'll get way down in the weeds if we hit everything. But I think it's important in my short amount of time with you today that we hit just the major themes of this passage. Pick me up in verse number six. It says this, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him to say, please underline these three words. This just pause for a second. These three words will be absolutely important. You will not understand the rest of the passage unless you understand these three words. And the reason is because it's not mentioned once in this passage, not twice, not three times, not four times, five times it's mentioned in this passage, and we got to deal with it today. So please underline, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. 
Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth and to cities and to, and to who dwells in them. Verse 9. Here it is again. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many people. You have fortified your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and from the beam and from the woodwork respond. Verse 12. Here it is again. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts and the people's labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Here it is again. Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that, ter that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Verse 18, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For it is for its maker trust in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Last time we're going to see these, these three words. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone. Arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. I want to preach today from the topic entitled Five Woes. Five Woes. Let us look to the Lord. Father, we come to you uh, really echoing the words of Daniel chapter 9, verse 18. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. It is mercy that we're able to talk to you and communicate with you right now. In reality, Lord, you could have treated earth like a cosmic wind-up clock and just let it run. But you decided to be intimate with your people, so intimate that you've allowed us to communicate with you today. And Lord, we thank you. We realize this morning or this afternoon that we cannot understand your word without hearing from you, without you opening on our, our eyes and opening our heart and that we may behold the wondrous things in your law. So Father, would you open our eyes this morning to gaze upon Jesus Christ. Father, may this text not lead us in despair. The passage on wrath and judgment sometimes can be overwhelming. But Father, I pray that this would breed in us a sense of hope in Jesus Christ. It is in his, his name and his name alone that we come before you. We all say amen. amen. Five woes. There have been a few times in my life that I have experienced evil from people. And I'm sure if I pass the mic around, I'm sure there are times in your life that you have experienced a certain level of evil specifically coming from people. One of those times was when my wife and I uh, purchased our first house out in the suburbs of, um, the suburbs of Philadelphia, about 45, to, uh, 45 minutes to an hour away from the church that we were attending at the time, Epiphany Fellowship in North Section of Philly. And 
Uh, when we first, you know, started going to Philly, it was cool. We just commuted, you know, on, for small groups. We commuted for uh, the activities and the events in the church, and we commuted for Sunday mornings, and everything was all good until we started to sense a calling to plant this church. And when we sensed the calling to plant this church, we realized that it was important for us to really get out of the suburbs, to really get into the inner city, because that's where our heart was. And so for two years, we said, we're going to move into the inner city, and I'm going to do my pastoral residency at the church. And so we moved literally down the street from the church in North Philly. And when we moved there, you know, my wife was really, really adamant that she really wanted to keep the property. She did not want to put the house on the market to sell it. So we decided that we were going to put the house on the market to lease it. It's the first time in our lives that we were going to become landlords, and there was a lot that we learned about being landlords. Uh, One of them is that we really needed to tighten up the process, the vetting process to get tenants into your house. We didn't have a good process. We kind of went off that own intuition. Uh, Well, the first time we did it, it did not work out well at all. Uh, I can't, it's it's no way to describe the tenants that we had in our house besides uh, just wickedness evil, and I'm trying to be, you know, I'm trying to respect them. It was wickedness and evil is what we experienced. So when we moved, we said, you know what we're going to do? We, we have some furniture that, you know, we downgraded, so it was no way that we could move all of our stuff into these apart- department that we moved in in Philly. And so we said, we're going to make a deal that we leave our stuff here and our tenants can use the stuff. So we left our patio furniture. We left a long, nice, expensive couch. My, my father says there's a few things you don't cut corners on, and furniture is one of them. Uh, and so we, we bought some, you know, a durable couch that we could, you know, kid, had kids that could jump on it and all of that stuff. And we left a nice armoire upstairs. And there's about three or four pieces of nice furniture that we left at the house. Well, the, the relationship with the tenants went sour uh, after a couple of years, and we realized that they needed to move on and they needed to get out, and so we helped them along. I'm trying to be as nice as possible. We helped them along to move out of the house, and uh, once they moved out of the house, it came time for us to go check out the house. And they moved somewhere where we, I still don't even know where they are, uh, but they moved, and we didn't know where they were, and by the time we got there to check out the house, all of the furniture was gone. They stole everything. Now, I don't know if you've ever gotten anything stolen from you before, but that is an unexplainable feeling. That feeling where you worked hard and you earned it and, you, you know, you bought you something nice and then somebody just comes by and steals it because they just felt like they wanted it. And that was the first time I've ever experienced that level of uh, wickedness or even that's the first time anybody's ever stolen anything from me. There's another situation where I experienced evilness. And this, this situation happened right in Philly. Thank God I moved. I need therapy. That's, thank God I moved out of Philly. I was living in Philly, and, and, and I was getting on Route 1 Highway, and I was on the acceleration lane, and I wasn't paying attention, and I, and I bumped into the back of a lady's car with my car. When I tell you I did not bump into her heart, it was a very, very slight bump, and we pulled over to the side. We both pulled over. We called the cops just to get the cops there so we can uh, document it. And I looked at her bumper, and it was a, just a little teeny-weeny scratch on it. But she wanted a new bumper. She said, you know, we got to get the insurance companies involved or you can pay for the bumper. Well, I decided not to get the insurance company involved. And so I said, I'm going to pay for the bumper. $700 is what it cost me to get that bumper fixed. Well, the very next week, I'm now driving, not on Route 1, but I'm driving in another part of Philly. And as I'm driving, somebody rear ends me and they hit me so hard that the taste was knocked out of my mouth. The car shut off. I I went almost like into the intersection because the way they hit me. And I'm thinking that this person is going to do the same thing that I did. But you know what they did? 
they pulled right off and sped off. And I was left with a shattered bumper. And here, you know, that feeling of your good being met with evil is a hard feeling. Don't act like those moments you don't question God. God, are you really protecting me? Are you really after my care? There was another situation I had. This is the last one I'll tell you. I'm getting my therapy out today. I'm just on your couch. I should have put a couch up here today. I got issues, man. There was another time where, this is the first experience I, I ever experienced uh, racism. I was eight years old, and I was playing Pop Warner football for the Camp Lejeune Double Pups in Jacksonville, North Carolina. And, and as I'm playing the, the, in the game, uh, there, there was a guy on the, on the opposite team that was illegally holding my, my jersey. He wasn't supposed to do that, so I went to the ref to tell the ref to watch out for him because he's holding my jersey. And when I go to the ref, it's an older white gentleman, and he says to me, get away from me, and he says the N-word. It's the first time I've ever experienced anything like that, and I thought something was wrong with me. I thought I did something uh, wrong, and, you know, that level of evil and that level of hatred, like, it's hard to overcome that. And again, if I pass the mic around, many of you have very, very similar stories, and maybe it was racism, maybe it was just dealing with evil bosses or evil coworkers or family members or friendships that went south. All of us in this room have those stories of when it felt like evil was triumphing over you. We're in our text this morning. It feels like in chapter one, evil was triumphing over God's people. Because in chapter one, what you see is God saying, I'm going to punish my people, Judah, for their sins. But how I'm going to do it, you're not going to like. I'm going to use a more wicked nation than Judah in order to condemn my people. Now that we're in chapter two, chapter two last week started with Habakkuk sitting in the watchtower waiting to hear from God. And he was also waiting to see how he was going to respond to what God says. Well, actually, now in our text, we don't hear anything else from Habakkuk. We don't hear from Habakkuk until chapter three, because all of the rest of chapter two is God speaking. And when God is speaking, he's speaking in our text about how he, hear me, not punish how he will pour out his wrath on the evil nation. And so if you're in here and you're like, man, I, I was really done wrong. People just got me. God sees it and God knows it. And, and you know, what's interesting is there are times where you could read texts like this and say, like, God, you're going to punish us with the evil nation. But when you look at chapter two, God shows us in his holiness that he's going to condemn even the wicked nation. Why? Because he can't let sin go unpunished. There is no sin that can go unpunished in your life. If, you, if you're in the midst of sin right now, listen, it has to go punished. The good news about the gospel is that you are not the one getting punished if you trusted in Jesus. But the punishment is always on Jesus Christ. Let's get into the text here. Verse 6, shall not all of these take up their taunts against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, I told you we're going to deal with this. Woe to him. It is very important that you understand this little three words of woe because current culture misunderstands this because we use it differently. We use this word woe to when we want someone to pause or slow down, we'll say woe, woe, woe. But that's not how it was used in 610 B.C. in the ancientness of the, of the scriptures. It wasn't used as a slowdown. It wasn't an expression of feeling. Whenever you saw woe, it was God pronouncing, if God is saying it, he's pronouncing not punishment, 
but eternal judgment. He is announcing that he's pouring out his wrath on this evil nation. Now, that becomes important to us because if you don't understand it in chapter in verse number six, by the time we get to chapter 20, you'll think you'll still think that God is punishing uh, uh, the Babylonians. He's not punishing the Babylonians. He's promising them that he's pouring out his wrath. He's promising them that he's going to execute judgment. And really what the underlining implication that we can get from this text is that God takes sin seriously. Let me say that again. God takes sin seriously. Okay, let me make it personal. God takes your sin seriously. And he takes it so seriously that he always moves to punish sin. Always. Now, the problem is God takes sin seriously, but you guys in this room don't. Can we be honest? Like, we at church, this is going to be real. I, I don't know how to fluff this thing. There are people in this room that are very nonchalant about their sin. There are people in this room that say, I go to a church that preach grace, and that means I can do whatever I want to. And if that is your disposition, you don't understand grace. Because if you think grace is a license to sin, read Paul's words in Romans chapter 6. Shall I continue in sin? Hear me, that grace may abound. What does he say? God forbid. How can we that are dead to sin Live in sin. Now, I've noticed this in the culture, but there's a pastoral concern that I've shared with our church at our fourth Wednesday night Bible study that I also have a concern with many members in the church that are nonchalant about their sin. You just don't take it seriously. And the reason we don't take it seriously is because we do not understand the holiness of God. Because, you know, when you read texts in the old, like you read this passage and, and God is like, woe to them, woe to them. He talks about the cup of the Lord's right hand, which is his wrath being poured out. When we read texts like this, we can conclude that God needs anger management classes. He's not angry. He's holy. And his holiness won't let you just do whatever you want to do. But he always, always. Now, here's the thing about the believer. The believer will never experience the wrath of God. Never. And the reason we don't experience the wrath of God is because Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God. He has licked the cup clean of the wrath of God. But even though you will not experience the wrath of God, he does give us spankings. He does punish us. What is he doing to Judah in the first chapter? He's spanking Judah. But what we see in the text is God does this because he's holy. And your problem is not that you need to understand your sin more. You probably know that it's not right. You don't understand how offensive it is to a holy God. Because if you understood how offensive it was to a holy God, you would check yourself. Nobody would need to check you. But unfortunately, we are very nonchalant about our sin. And if you want to see the collision between God's holiness and your sin, look no further than the Old Testament stories. If you look at the Old Testament stories, what you see is God's holiness always meeting our sin, and it's never a good thing. Look, look at places like in 2 Samuel chapter 6 with, uh, when they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Stay with me. Ark of the Covenant is, is God's uh, a visible symbol of his presence. 
That's what the Ark of the Covenant was. And they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And there's a guy named Uzzah. And honestly, man, if you read the passage, the Bible says they have symbols and they're worshiping and they're singing as they're coming back to Israel. And, and, and this Ark of the Covenant was on poles and it was sitting on oxen as it was being brought back because Leviticus tells them exactly how to carry the Ark of the Covenant. And they're bringing it back. And one of the oxen stumbles. And when he stumbles, Uzzah puts out his hand to steady it from stopping it from falling, and he drops dead. Why does he drop dead? He drops dead because no sinful hand can touch the holiness of God. He, he kills him in his tracks, despite the fact, hear me, that he was worshiping, which means you can have good intents and treat the holiness of God any old way. And he steadies the presence of God. And in the midst of steadying the presence of God, God kills him where he stands. Why? Because no sin can be in his presence. Look at Isaiah. Look at Isaiah chapter 6. Can we agree in this room that Isaiah probably has a better relationship with the Lord than you and I in this room? Like there's a moment in Isaiah that he stops the sun. Have you ever done that? He stops the sun because he's, he's communicating with God. Even Habakkuk, look at Habakkuk talking back and forth to God. You've never done that before. And so Isaiah probably has a tighter relationship with the Lord. But yet in Isaiah 6, the presence of the, God, of, of the Lord fills the room. And when the presence of the Lord fills the room, Isaiah drops to his feet. And he, he drops to his knees. And when he drops to his knees, this is what he says. Woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell amongst people of unclean lips. In other words, the holiness of God presented him with his own sinful nature. And you know what we do? Isaiah drops to his knees, but you act like my sin ain't that big of a deal. I'll say sorry. And some of you in here that that are, you know, you know, your friends are in sin and you're not saying anything because I don't want to be judgmental. Listen, the prophets never were like, I don't want to be judgmental, so I'm not going to say that. No, you share it. It's unloving not to. It's unloving not to tell people you are dead wrong. You cannot be doing that. That is, that, that is, again, you love Jesus and you're doing that. That is not judgmental when you're in relationship with that person. Now, if you're just walking up to people going, you know, sharing stuff, now that could be a little, that could be, but in the covenant of relationship, you should be able to tell people when they're wrong. So the text shows us here, Isaiah drops to his knees. He understands the holiness. Moses does not just mosey into the presence of the Lord. He gets put in the cleft of a rock and sees God's aftermath. But yet you and I in this room deal with our sin so nonchalant. We deal with it. And we're comfortable in it. And it's OK because I said sorry. No. Have you do you have a broken and contrite heart? What does repentance look like in your life? Now, hear me. I didn't wake up this morning excited about preaching about the wrath of God. I didn't. I want to preach about the love of God. I want to preach about the kindness and the grace and the mercy of God. But our text present the, presents us with God's holiness and our sin, and that means wrath, and that means judgment. That's why we worship Jesus, because the wrath is not on us. The other place you can see, last place I'm going to say that you can see the collision between the holiness of God and your sin is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest place. I, I love the song that says, we see your holiness and there's a line in there that says, we, but we see your holiness most clearly when we see you crucified. The slaughter of the innocent brings the guilty life. The best way you can see the collision of your sin and God's wrath and his holiness is at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so what do we get in this text? 
we get let in on the fact that God is serious about sin. And because God is serious about sin, we too should be serious about sin. Now, this is what we're going to do for the rest of our time. I'm going to walk through the five woe statements in our passage, and then I'm going to let you go. I'm going to briefly explain them, and then I'm going to let you go. Here's the five. I'm just going to list them out for you. Woe to the extortioner. Woe to the greedy and the arrogant. Woe to those who build on bloodshed. Woe to the drunk and the violent. And woe to the maker of an idol. Let's deal with all five of these really quickly. First one, woe to the extortioner. Look with me at verse 6, the B part. Woe to him who helps, who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. The first woe is a condemnation against those who make their money by cheating others. That's the first woe. Woe to the extortioner. Woe to the one who builds up wealth by unjust practices. This is woe to the con artist. This is woe to the thief. Woe to the one that scams others. And, you know, one of my favorite movies is White Men Can't Jump. I love that movie with Wesley Snipes and, and Woody Harrelson. In the movie, Woody Harrelson plays a basketball player, a white basketball player that, you know, he, he makes his living off of making people think that he's not that good on the courts. And so the black players look at him with these long socks and those little shorts on, and they see him stretching, and they're like, oh, he can't play. Let's bet money that he's going to lose the game. And then he gets in the game, and he has all these skills. And at some point, he pulls the, wools, the wool eyes over uh, Wesley Snipes, Sidney Dean in the movie. And in the movie, when he pulls the wool over Sidney Dean's eyes, he looks at it as a lucrative opportunity. He says, let's couple together, run the courts of L.A. and make all of this money. And so they go from court to court to court, and they're making all of this money, and they're making money by being con artists. And here's the problem. You do not have to only see con artistry on the, on the courts of L.A. It happens right in church, too. While you're lifting your hands to behold the lamb, somebody else got their hand in your pocket. Don't act like it doesn't. I've counseled enough that I realize some people will get rich off of loans. Some people will get rich off of asking you for money. And here's what the Bible is going to say. Woe to that person that builds their gain, builds their money off of scamming other people. And unfortunately, this happens way too often in the church. And here's what's really underneath the text, that God actually does care how you make money. You think that your job is just, you know, this is just how I provide for myself. No, your job, God cares on how you, he doesn't just care about the job. He doesn't care about your integrity. He cares about how you make money. Why? Because he puts it in the text. And if you're making money off of doing other people wrong and hurting other people, woe to you. We have to say that in here. I wish I didn't have to, but the reality is it happens in church. And this shows us here, like just because it's not illegal doesn't mean God approves of it. Because hustling people on the court isn't illegal, but God doesn't approve. Woe to the extortioner. Here's the second one. Woe to the greedy and the arrogant. Pick me up back in verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, which is talking about his house again. To be safe from the reach of harm, you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many people. This one is closely tied to the first one. The, the, this one deals with cheating others to build your own house. Now, the Babylonians were known for having these extravagant houses. 
They would build huge, huge houses, but they would do it at the expense of cheating others. So when he says woe to him, he's not saying woe to the material of the house. He's saying woe to the person that has scammed others by building that house. And this has become important for us. And when I was reading this earlier this week, I could not help from disconnecting that there is a house in America that was built off the slaves of treating others wrong. There is a house in America, and you know why I have to say this? Because some reason, there are parts of the country that people will think in order to be spiritual, you got to be a Republican. In order to be spiritual, you got to be a Democrat. And I, I want to help us this morning to unwrap the, the, the American flag from the cross. It has no place on the cross. The cross stands alone by itself. Here's what the text says. Woe to those. And, and you know, it's crazy because, you know, we think we're a God-fearing nation because we got in God we trust on our, on our money. Like, we're, we're not a God-fearing. When I read this, I see our politics in it. And here's the thing. Like, I'm not dying on a political hill. I'm just not doing it. I'm going to die on, on, on I'm going to praise the one that died on Golgotha's hill. That's the one I praise. I'm not going to die on this political hill. Now, I'm not saying don't obey the laws of the land. I'm not saying don't pay your taxes. You'll be arrested. Pay your taxes. <laughs> Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So I'm not telling you to go out here and go crazy. But what I am saying is do not intertwine that American flag on the cross. Do not do that. And many will do it. You are not a Christian unless you believe in this party's beliefs. That's unbiblical. So here's what he says. He says, woe to them who gets evil gain for his house. Woe to the extortioner. Woe to the greedy and the arrogant. Here's the third one. Woe to those who build on bloodshed. And I'm not sure if you're picking this up, but he's building on the same thing. Pick me up in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and, and is found, on iniqui- on this, found the city on iniquity. For some reason, we skip texts like this because we think we didn't kill anybody. Because I've never shed anyone's blood, then therefore, let's just jump to the next wall because this one doesn't, this one doesn't hit me. But the reality is some of you haven't killed anybody, but you've assassinated others' character to get that job. You've assassinated others' character to get in that relationship. And, you know, if you have to move up the corporate ladder by tearing somebody else down, woe to you. I mean, the scriptures is very, very clear today, and many of us do that. We assassinate, we talk about people, we gossip about people, and we do that because we want to tear them down and we want to pull their reputation down to make us look good, to make us look better. And here's what the Bible is saying to us this morning. Woe to you. I used to work at Verizon Wireless, and I was, uh, I was over the, the hiring process for this one department. I was the manager of the team, so they allowed me to hire for the team, and I opened up a, a position within the department that was a very, it was a high demand position. A lot of people wanted it. They wanted it. It was a, it was a step up. And I went through this long, extensive interviewing process. Me and a couple of other colleagues went through this long, extensive interview process. And at the, end, at the end of the interview process, it was time for us to make the selection. And I get to my office one morning and I look on my desk and there's an anonymous note on my desk. And as I read the note, it's talking about one of the candidates. And it became very clear to me by the mid part of the the note, it became so clear to me that someone else I interviewed actually tried to pull someone else down in order to make themselves look better. 
And that's what we do. But we look at that person and say, man, that's messed up. But we do it all the time, but with our lips. We do it all the time with our text messages. We pull others down and the Bible says, woe to you. When you try to pull, when you try to build your life and build a town off of bloodshed, and it may not physically be blood, but some of us have done that spiritually. Some of us have done that, assassinating others' character. Now, this woe is unique because, stay with me, in verse 14, in verse 14, there's a positive in the midst of all of this wrath. Here's the positive. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This shows us that God is not only after executing wrath. Ultimately, what God is after is for everyone to know him. That's what he's after. When he executes wrath and he executes punishment and he executes judgment, he wants the entire earth to be filled with the glory and the knowledge of God. Here's the first woe. Woe to the extortioner. Second one, woe to the greedy and the arrogant. Third one, woe to those who build on bloodshed. Here's the fourth one. Woe to the drunk and the violent. Look back with me, verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk. Listen why they do it. In order to gaze at their nakedness. Babylon was known for its orgies, known, can we say that in church? I said it, it's too late. <laughs> Babylon was known for turning up in its parties. Read Daniel chapter 5. Listen, it didn't take long for Babylon to turn up. It just didn't. They knew how to put, provide the drinks, provide the wine, and then they was having all of these orgies. And the Bible is saying, woe to you who do that. And, and you, you know, the problem in the text isn't drinking. The problem in the text isn't having sex. Because if you read the rest of Scripture, the Bible really doesn't condemn either one of them. Okay. Jesus says, I come to you, neither, no, he, he says, John comes to you neither eating nor drinking, and you called him a glutton. But the Son of Man comes to you, listen, both eating and drinking, and you say he has a demon. And so the Bible is not condemning drinking, it's, it's condemning getting drunk. The Bible is not condemning sex because within the context of marriage, sex is okay. No, sex is great in the context of marriage. The problem is when we pervert it, and in our text, he is perverting. You see how I said that when I stood right here? I'm so immature. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But the Bible is condemning. This is what the Bible is condemning. Getting people drunk in order to take advantage of them. And fellas, let, let me just tell you. Brothers, we don't buy another round to get her under the influence of alcohol so that we can take sexual advantage of her. And sisters, listen, if you're on the opposite end of this and someone is taking advantage of you, the Bible condemns that person. Like, you didn't do anything wrong. You know how many young ladies I sit across and they're like, I didn't tell anybody this because they felt like they did something wrong. Your skirt was not too short. You weren't showing too much cleavage. There, it, the issue is on them, and the Bible says, woe to them. Yeah. And I want to push back that value and that dignity in our young ladies. If you were done wrong, if you, were, if you received some type of rape, if, you, if someone sexually misused you, they were wrong, not you. And if you need to talk to somebody, you should do that. So the Bible says, woe to them who, who gets others drunk and, and takes advantage of them. 
you are 100% not in the wrong. Woe to the extortioner. Woe to the greedy and the arrogant. Woe to those who build on bloodshed. Woe to the drunk and the violent. And woe to the maker of idol. And I, I just want to say this really quickly. This is not part of the sermon, but I really feel led to say this. If you are, are that young lady in here and, and you were abused, like, I want to make myself avail, available to talk to you. Because that is traumatic and you need to talk to somebody if that's you. Let's get back to the fifth one. Woe to the maker of idols. Look at verse 18. We'll finish here. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. Lies, For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who, makes, who, sa- who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. Let me state the obvious. If you have to make your own God, can we agree that's a whack God? If you have to beg your God to talk, if you have to beg your God to teach, can we all agree that ain't a good God? And the text is almost comical because... In verses 18 to 19, they're making these speechless idols. They're putting them on the shelf. By the time you get to verse 20, the Bible says the Lord is in the temple. Don't nobody got to put them there. He's there. But you got to put your God where you want him. And, and here's the reality. Some of you aren't making shrines. Some of you aren't making God. Someone, some of you aren't putting gold and silver around wooden objects and saying, that's my God. But you got a bunch of functional saviors in your life. And some of you, your functional savior is even wrapped in spirituality. My pastor is my functional savior. If you're waiting for me to be your functional savior, I will fail you. Not tomorrow, today. I'm just telling you, I'm that flawed. And, but we do that. We wrap ourselves around a person and they become our functional savior. And we do that in relationships. We wrap ourselves around our boyfriend or our girlfriend, and that becomes our idol. And so you may not have shrines on your shelf, but it might be the person that you're laying right next to in bed. You might not have a shrine on the shelf, but it might be that person that you are idolizing. We are idolaters at heart. And the Bible says, woe to him who makes someone else a God. And some of you dibble and dabble in other religions. First of all, let me just say thank you for coming. Like, I'm not even trying to be funny. We are, like, it takes boldness to come into a church that is passionately singing and preaching and talking about Jesus. Thank you for coming if you do not trust in Jesus. Thank you for coming. Can we thank God for those that not don't trust in Jesus, but that came today? That might be you. But here's what I know. God doesn't sit on a board of other gods. He just doesn't. He sits alone. He makes judgment Alone. In fact, let me put a little Bible here. Here's what Isaiah 45 uh, verse 5 will say. I am the Lord and there is no other God. Beside me, there is no other God. And God, like for some reason, we think that we can cherry pick from a bunch of different religions. I, I hate to say this, but it's so true. If I could make another way for you get, to get into heaven that was easy, I would do it. I would make, we'd be eating cheesesteaks and fries and that'd be how you get into heaven. But the Bible doesn't give us other options. Like Jesus isn't, like he's not the best of a couple of ways. He's the way. He's the, the life. There's only him. 
And so if you're in here and, you know, you're, you're, I'm not angry, but if you're in here and you're like, man, I'm dibbling and dabbling in a bunch of other religions, let me, let me just help you, like, forsake all others and trust in Jesus because there is no other God. I don't care. We have functional saviors in our life. Your job has become a functional savior. But look at what the Bible says in verse 20. Although you make your God and you put him on the shelf, the Lord, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Here's what you need to pick up in our text. And I went way over time. In our passage, you need to pick up that God takes sin serious. You need to pick up in our passage that God will move to punish sin. And if you're in this room and you have not trusted Jesus, let me tell you how you can bypass the wrath of God. You bypass the wrath of God by putting your faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it's that simple. Like there's not, nothing else to add to it, nothing else to take away from it. Like the gospel is a, such a crazy plan. We would have never thought of this. What king do you know will die for his people? God comes down from heaven, gets on a cross to take on your sin. And here's what the Bible says. It pleases the father to crush the son. He was pleased to crush his son. Why? Because it crushed your sin. And now those of us that have trusted in Jesus get to stand before God as though we lived like Jesus. And he stood on the cross as though he lived like you. This is the gospel of Christ. And when we read passages about the wrath of God, it's like this is not scare tactics because scare tactics don't get you into heaven. Jesus gets you into heaven. And so what we need is not to scare people to heaven. We need to tell people you are loved by Jesus Christ. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Some of you are still playing with your sin. You are. Some of you have professed faith in Jesus, but you're extortioners. Some of you have professed faith in Jesus, but let's be real. You're greedy and you're arrogant. Some of you have professed faith in Jesus, but you've built your life on tearing others down. Some of you have professed faith in Jesus, but you can't stop. You, you got to have a beer before you go to bed. Some of us have professed faith in Jesus, but we have other idols in our life. And, and I, I want to just pray today. I think this text hits all of us. Although the text is talking about Babylon and their wickedness, there are believers in this room that do the same thing Babylon did. Father, I want to pray for everybody in this room. I do realize that sin is attractive. For, for some reason, we, we want to act like sin wasn't attractive, like, you know, the life of sin wasn't fun. Nah, it was. But Lord, today, help us to discipline ourselves to follow you. I pray for the one in this room that is nonchalant about their sin. I pray for the one in this room that doesn't understand your holiness and how you will move to punish sin. I pray for that person in this room. Father, I pray that obedience would be birthed in this room. Pray that we wouldn't feel that people are judging us because they're calling us out on sin. No, we need to be called out on sin. Pray that they would we would realize that they're just helping us to be obedient to the Lord. May we not take grace for granted. May we not abuse your kindness. Because in abusing your kindness, what we realize is the life that can continue in sin, we must question if we trust you. So those that trust in you in this room, 
Help us to align ourselves. Help us to repent, Lord. Help us to do business after this service, after this sermon. May we sit and wrestle with our sin and confess it to you. And I would say, go so far as to say, Lord, help us to confess it to others so that we can be held accountable. It's for your grace and your mercy that we come before you. In Christ's name, amen.